If A&M schemes are being designed based on sustained rating, where you have intermittent generation, such as battery storage on their solar PV, especially where there's clear evidence or potentially contracted capability of limiting the duration of battery storage, it seems incredibly pessimistic based on sustained ratings. And I think it's there again, something that needs to be looked at. And I feel like it's probably going to be a temporary element and that ultimately it will be solved over time. My concern is the damage that will happen first of people making investment decisions based on the sustained ratings, when actually if it was based on the cyclic ratings, it could significantly reduce their risk. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. Hello and welcome to another one of Road Knight Taylor's Grid News and Views episodes. I think this is episode number six. So I'm Pete Aston. And I'm joined by Philip Bale, Happy. Kyle Murchie, Happy. and Nikki Pillinger. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and listening. So we've got a whole raft of um, subjects to talk through. As ever, I think this is possibly the biggest list yet. So we'll see how much we get through. So I'm going to go over to Nikki first, who wanted to talk about technical limits. So just a quick update on technical limits. So we have had a few DNOs coming out with their phase 1A reports. So SSE bought theirs out at the end of December, as did UKPN. Um, Northern Power Grid have bought out some constraint reports, um, but we haven't had the formal variations yet. And Enged have also sent out some of their 1A reports. However, the acceptance uh, dates are quite variable. So uh, Enged, as an example, only gave 10 days to accept. UKPN and SSE gave quite a long, longer time, so... Just make sure, guys, that you're not assuming that these are sort of standard 30-day variation terms and make sure that you know what the stipulations are with your DNO. And any queries you've got, get them in super quickly because they appear to be quite inundated with them at the moment. Okay, and um, so I'd, I'd sat in, I think maybe you did as well, Nikki, the NPG's sort of combined update with National Grid this week, I think it was, uh, which showed all the the sites that they were going to be doing in under phase two of technical limits so phase two is the the more complex sites like infrastructure sites and, and other ones so so the dnos are starting to publish timelines around that for for how that's going to be rolled out this year as well so lots to see with technical limits anything to say around some of the the constraints uh, and curtailment that we've seen coming out under technical limits so I've seen a few that have started to come out and um, I think some of it very much depends on the luck of which GSP you're on, how much generation has previously been put through onto part two, the diversity mix of the different generations. I've seen GSPs where there is no reverse power flow limits. Effectively, the limits are based on the import from the GSP because previously there's not been considerable generation on part two and that can have a massive skew on the level of Catalma risk depending on where you are in that queue so 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 some of these technical limits offers are going to look really good for some customers for others they're going to look very very difficult to to sort of invest on and then there again some of the technical limits are going to have different technical limits for different seasons for the gsp sometimes different times of the day whereas other technical limits for other gsps will be sustained 
a 24-7, 365 day sort of limit for the GSP. So it will very much be on a case-by-case basis. The one thing I would say is any developer who's getting these really try and understand what the assumptions are that are being used in the reports because any curtailment report, technical limit report, is based on an assumption. Some of the assumptions are too pessimistic. Some of them are too optimistic. They appear to be very different between different DNOs. So that's the key thing here is sort of be aware of which DNO, what the assumptions are, how they've been doing the reports, and then ultimately what that means for your project. And then I know, Philip, you had on the, the list of things, which I think is going to appropriate now, but to talk about sort of data accuracy around LIFO queues and technical limits queues. So this is more around, is the curtailment limit, the, the, con- the, the constraint I've got in this report based on sensible, accurate information? I think you're going to pick up on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something that we are seeing at times and the deeper you dig into projects, sometimes you can find issues and errors where a project will be proceeding and then all of a sudden there's an update to a catalma report and there appears there's more generation that's ahead in the queue because it was missed in the first report. Or equally, just seeing different lists of data with very different priorities of generation in there and a need to be, for the DNOs in particular, to be very clear on data cleansing. So they have a very clear queue for generation that gets shared with customers so they can make sensible decisions on if their project should proceed. And it's very dangerous not to do that. And we are seeing issues and errors, which is sometimes beneficial, sometimes very detrimental. I know I was looking at one scheme with you um, the other day where sort of the, the list of generation schemes in the technical limits form that came back seemed to sort of clash with lists of generation that you might find on the embedded capacity register and not being able to tie the two together. You know, so it's quite difficult to actually check, isn't it, whether these are right or wrong? Absolutely. I think there are completely different lists for these versus the embedded capacity register. So it's almost impossible to go through and match with a high degree of confidence as to which scheme is where in terms of the list. And for some networks, the data is really poor, like around 50% accuracy. Most of them, thankfully, are far better than that. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Uh, Kyle, I know you wanted to sort of talk briefly around that uh, sort of transmission queue management milestones. Yeah, absolutely. So We've got a podcast out that was uh, published in in December on that, so I won't go into too much detail. We'll also touch on it as well in another podcast that's going to go out uh, shortly, which we recorded today, based on mod apps and uh, agreements to vary. But no, it was just a quick mention that given that queue management rules are being applied at transmission level and milestones are, are being introduced, um, we do have a calculator that that we produced and is available on the website for free so do absolutely go and have a have a look download it play with it do give us feedback it's fairly straightforward but effectively it's been designed to make sure that you know up front what your milestones are likely to look look like and and also do a bit of a kind of cross-reference and, and check once you get the the offers themselves and what the, the two bits of information you need are the, your sort of anticipated offer issue date and your anticipated connection date is that yeah, offer date when you when it's going to be issued to you and your connection date. It does also cater for multiple stages. So if you have one offer date, but you have maybe three stages or two stages within the uh, two completion dates, let's say, for different technologies, it can cater for that as well. So it'll give you a, a view of, of what your appendix queue should look like. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Kyle. 
Um, I had a, a a brief thing. Just I think it came out this week or last week, just around the name of the new um, future system operator. So National Grid ESO is going to become NESO. <laughs> so a, a huge change. Apart from the 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 one word is changing is electricity to energy, isn't it? So it's going to be the National Energy System Operator, which I guess gives it that sort of broader, maybe cross-vector view. So it's going to be interesting to see how the the NESO um, is going to develop. And I think it's due to come into force this summer, isn't it? Yep, I believe. That's right. So it's going to become a, a public body, public corporation. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll look to see more announcements on that, I guess, as, as the year goes on. Nikki, I know you wanted to sort of bring up and flag to people's attention about um, a grid code modification that's potentially got big consequences. Yes, so this has kind of been rumbling along in the background for quite a while now. It is GC0117, and it's looking at standardising the sizing for generators. So up in Scotland, uh, in the two areas of Scotland and in England, we have different thresholds for sizing of uh, large, medium embedded generators. What this is seeking to do, or one of the the main things uh, that it was trying to bring forward, is actually having the threshold for large as 10 megawatts. This would be quite significant because this would mean that you would have to participate in the balancing mechanism, which could be quite expensive and quite onerous for generators. So this has, as I said, been rumbling along, but it's now it's going to consultation on the 12th of February. So that'll be open until the 5th of April. So do keep an eye out for that. I think the working group sort of didn't come to a decision, but they have come to a, you know, a, a consensus that this very much needs uh, further discussion. So yeah, that um, that was kind of it on that. But yeah, make sure that you're aware of that and make sure that you respond if you think that's going to uh, to influence you. I have interest, Nikki, on that. Is that being purely looked at for new connections, or would that be retrospectively applied to any connected party? I'm not sure that's been clarified. That was one of the things that very much came up in that 2027 was a date that was sort of banded around in terms of if you energise before 2027, then you won't. But if you energise after 27, then you will. Not sure where that's got to, but hopefully that will come out in the in consultation. Fantastic. Thank you, Nikki. That's great. Now, Philip, I know you love a good A&M system and a good uh, constraint analysis. So uh, I think you wanted to raise an issue around the types of ratings that are being used in some A&M systems. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, A&M has a lot of benefits in terms of allowing connections to use up the headroom that's within networks. One of the things we always say when you do Catalma assessment is you need to look at the A&M system that's being installed to understand how it will be operated because ultimately the Catalma assessment should link very closely to the A&M scheme that's being installed. What we have seen in some instances is that the circuit ratings that are going to be used are based on the sustained rating. So basically, the rating of a circuit, if powered to run through them 24-7, 365 days a year, rather than a cyclic rating where they would run a bit hotter for a period and then call back down again. And that can allow you to have an increased rating on a network based on the fact that it gets hot and then gets cold again. If A&M schemes are being designed based on sustained rating, where you have intermittent generation, such as battery storage on there, solar PV, especially where there's clear evidence, potentially contracted capability of limiting the duration of battery storage, it seems incredibly pessimistic based on sustained ratings. And I think it's there again, something that needs to be looked at. 
There could be a few scenarios where sustained ratings are appropriate. Mainly it gets used where there's large industrial commercial users, data centers, very steady elements. But if networks are PV driven with peaky and intermittent generation, it feels like that might be overly pessimistic, which might cause people not to invest in schemes where eventually they might relax the ratings, go back to a cyclic rate, cyclic rating, and then ultimately people's curtailment levels could drop considerably. Do you think this is more of an issue for the curtailment reports or for what the ratings that are going to be put into the live systems? I think it's the live systems, which then affects the curtailment reports. And I feel like it's probably going to be a temporary element and that ultimately it will be solved over time. My concern is the damage that will happen first of people making investment decisions based on the sustained ratings, when actually if it was based on the cyclic ratings, it could significantly reduce their risk. The downside being is we don't know if and when the DNOs might end up changing their design policies to then go to a cyclic rating where it's appropriate. So it's just adds uncertainty. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Philip. So I think that's, you know, just a, a note of caution around curtailment reports and A&M and even more reason to dig deep into the, the assumptions and, and so on around uh, curtailment reports. Okay. Thanks, Philip. That's great. Um, so Kyle, I think you wanted to say something around National Grid's solutions for thermal construction. Yeah, so just a real quick one, just to mention that National Grid ESO um, have launched a, a finding solutions for thermal constraints group, and they're looking for feedback for the 29th, I think it is, of, of February. Uh, it's quite an open forum. It's effectively just looking for um, information fed back via a form. Um, it does cover demand and generation, so it's looking at both levels of, of kind of constraint. Um you know, the ultimate solution in the longer run may very much be reinforcement by the TOs, but it's acknowledging that in the short term, that that's not going to happen. You can't overnight uh, uh, complete all that reinforcement. So what market mechanisms could be put in place to, to help facilitate um, the unblocking of, of constraints? So they're looking at it from a cost to GB perspective. It's very costly now and it continues to increase year on year, the cost of constraints and payouts from, from the ESO on, on those constraints. So, yeah, it's effectively looking at collating some ideas. So it's not specifically got to be a market mechanism. It could be other options, but um, if anyone's got any ideas, it's something we're looking at. But, uh, yeah, ESO is, is open to ideas. So, so that's a group that developers could go and join if they, if they wanted to yeah, sort so, of feed into that conversation. Yeah, so initially, if you go online, look, um, look at it on, on their website, uh, it's just known as finding solutions for thermal constraints, and there are two feedback forms, and effectively developers can can put their thoughts thoughts on those forms and, and submit. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Kyle. I think that's an appropriate place for us to take a break. So we'll see you after the break. I hope you're really enjoying this episode so far, and you're gaining a lot of very useful insight. If you're a new listener, I hope that you'll feel like you might come back. If so, make sure you hit the follow button. And feel free to sign up to our newsletter, The Connectologist, at roadnighttaylor.co.uk so you don't miss out on any of the podcasts, webinars, case studies, thought pieces and explains. Welcome back. Uh, So I now wanted to raise a point. So it was sort of towards the second half of last year that the ENA brought out their 
tactical solutions uh, for uh, battery schemes. So this was with a drive to try and make it easier to connect battery schemes onto the network. So so tactical solution one, which we, I know we did a podcast on uh, last year, was all around the the requirement for DNOs to offer batteries as non-firm connections in terms of their their import, their, their demand element, which is probably positive because maybe some DNOs had been doing that, some hadn't. I think how DNOs are going to interpret that is going to be interesting to see as as we get offers out this year. Um, I have seen one offer um, from a DNO where intertrips have been uh, um, sort of uh, required um, as opposed to A&M. So it's a sort of two feeders out from a, um, a GSP down to a BSP, customers connecting into one of the two 132 kV circuits. Um, there is an intertrip required on the battery for the outage of the other circuit that they're not connecting to, which, you know, might be okay, but, you know, could A&M have been more appropriate because there isn't actually any thermal constraint on that circuit as it stands. So, but but, but there, there was an allowance within the recommendation for um, DNOs to be able to offer the constraint, even if there wasn't currently a constraint. But I think an A&M solution in that scenario might be more appropriate to allow at least some import um, during the outage of the other circuit. I think there's a very, it's a case-by-case assessment as to what's better, A&M and Intertrip, and potentially if they end up getting used together. Obviously, the best scenario is not to trip the generation off altogether, and whether under certain scenarios, potentially storage needs to be slowed down to prevent the rapid change and overloads and set limits coming in. So it feels wrong to pre-curtail generation on the event that the circuit could trip it out at any time, but also not the best solution to trip the generation off if the circuit runs abnormally, if there's headroom before there. So that's where I feel like eventually, especially for the big schemes where ultimately there's more finances available for finding the best solution, potentially a hybrid of both would work. One, to enable that the generation doesn't overload or the import or export doesn't overload the network causing cascade tripping and number two ultimately people can utilize the most out of the network so it's not being too pessimistic there does need to be consistency in costs across the dnos as well in order for customers to make that decision so as an example the other day i saw a scheme that had AM versus intertrip and AM was several hundreds of thousands of pounds you know, this is not the case in all of the DNOs, but there shouldn't be that disparity. It should be an, an, a viable option for customers that they don't have to consider is going to cost such a, an order of magnitude more. Agreed. And I think some of it is some of the DNOs still trying to get their head around actual A&M delivery in practice. And over time, they'll learn more around what the actual cost of delivering it is. But as was mentioned earlier, the last thing we want is for customers to be scared off and not make the right decisions and viable schemes not being taken up um, and people making the wrong choices. Okay, brilliant. So uh, move on to, to Philip now. So uh, well, this is probably an overlap between something that Philip and I both wanted to bring up, which is just around constraints for demand connections, uh, mostly in the region of sort of transmission type constraints where some demand connections are being held off for years and years and years while transmission works happen. Of course, we've already talked about technical limits for accelerating generation schemes, but that very specifically only applies to generation schemes. 
if you happen to be a demand connection in an area that is constrained for import, you've got no facility at present to accelerate your connection. Um, so yeah, I, I think you wanted to sort of feed into that conversation as well, because it's really frustrating me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there again, this comes back to exactly what Nikki said around consistency. It's around trying to understand consistency. Obviously, parties should be treated fairly. But it raises a question of if a developer is looking at doing EV charging hubs, which will help facilitate the electrical vehicle, um, people using them on the road, having more quick, rapid charges on the system, ultimately allowing us to decarbonize our transport sector, should they be delayed by 10 or 12 years for transmission reinforcement works? If you have industrial commercial customers where they're going to generate jobs and help the economy, should they be waiting 10, 12 years for transmission reinforcements? Obviously, it shouldn't just be a blanket. Everything can go. There has to be understanding of what impact it has on everyone. But I think the questions need to be raised of what's material? What different scenario? What should be allowed to proceed? What shouldn't be allowed to save? What is the solutions that can allow the decarbonization of GB to proceed as quickly as possible? Especially as a lot of the import capacity has been taken by batteries <laughs> which which have been obviously done to uh, are being installed to try and help accelerate our economy towards a net zero economy so so that the, you know that the two are sort of fighting against each other and i guess for me one of the frustrations is the fact that there's n no longer a level playing field between demand and generation so generation connections have at least an option of accelerating under technical limits okay your curtailment might be massively high and you might not feel it's uh, you know appropriate but at least there's the option there whereas for a demand customer at the moment there's just nothing and so i personally if you're listening dnos and uh, ena and national grid i think there needs to be a like a technical limits type process for demand you know may, maybe as philip was saying up to a certain materiality level or, or something um, but something needs to be done to allow small demand connections to proceed I think the only thing we have seen is in West London, where obviously it is possible for ramped demand connections up to 999 kVA per year to go through, up to a maximum of 10 years for connections. The requirements for those are quite niche. It has to be more than a megawatt, less than 10 megawatts, has to be able to be rampable in their process. So it's quite a, uh, a narrow area of projects that it will facilitate. But I think that sort of thing should be done everywhere in the sense that it will unlock more capacities and then potentially also a little bit broader. And of course, we touched earlier on the hydrogen podcast around kind of probably larger demand and particularly focusing a bit more on transmission. But aside from technical limits, there are quite a few other constraints and degrees of separation between how generation is treated and, and how demand is as well. So I think across the board, you know, you now got the way securities are treated, the way that SQSS treats kind of generation differently from, from demand, that's quite a big barrier to, to a lot of the decarbonisation. Mm. Definitely yeah. one that the industry as a whole needs to, in my view, really kind of refocus on. There's been a lot of focus for batteries over the last few years, which has been the right thing to do, but now trying to solve those, those issues and remove those barriers to... Yeah, well, it, it could yeah, it could well be now that that sort of generation battery issue is maybe slowly starting to resolve itself with lots of focus and change over the last year or two. Maybe this year's the, the year for 
uh, demand connections to come to the fore. With that in mind, uh, Nikki, I know you want to just talk about like regional developments. Yeah, so one of the things that uh, the new NESO is going to be incorporating is uh, regional energy strategic planners. So they are going to be responsible for kind of joining up the energy system with local planning, with the DNOs, with broader government objectives. So we don't know a huge amount about this yet, but I think the role that they're going to have is, is going to be quite important. There's going to be 13 new bodies for these sort of regional system planners. They, they, and frustratingly, don't follow the DNOs. They uh, tend to follow the uh, Transport for England boundaries that we have at the moment. The people that are actually working in these sort of regional energy system planner roles or RESPs, <laughs> as they've been sort of abbreviated to, are going to be responsible for more of that, the multi-year planning and the sort of cross-vector planning between electricity and gas. And also planning and also sort of all of those bodies that feed into this. I think there was a, a general consensus when the government went out to consultation on this that there wasn't enough coordination and there needed to be a sort of central point by which planning was actually done and who actually had a sort of a full picture of what was happening. To my mind, the DNOs haven't been doing a bad job of that. They do engage with local councils very often. They do actually try and engage with developers to see what is going on in an area. So I think this is positive in a way. I also think having sort of one point of contact can almost dilute the expertise that you need sometimes. It'd be interesting to get everyone else's view on this in a minute. And there's also this sort of talk about prioritising and deprioritizing projects uh, based on what technologies and what is perceived to be needed in that area. I, I also think that it's kind of ignoring the fact that we've got this massive grid queue. Last news from uh, NGS. So last week was that we've now got 570 gigawatts of contracted capacity on the grid. And a lot of that isn't going to go anywhere very quickly. So we have to kind of marry up how all of this contracted capacity that we already have, that's already had a certain amount of investment in, then actually goes together with this more strategic energy system plan. Whereas we've had more of a market-based approach, we seem to be quite quickly moving towards a non-market-based approach. So yeah, for, for me, that's a kind of the elephant in a room in terms of but we already have more, you know, we have five times more solar and five times more storage capacity contracted that we actually need to meet net zero by 2050 goals. And that to me, I'm not quite sure how it's going to line up with this more localised kind of planning, you know, who prioritises this? How is it prioritised? I mean, I agree, Nikki, that there's a massive queue of generation coming through. And the bit that I always relate to is, in my previous role, I had a lot of people apply for connections to my license area. I had a fair number of acceptances come through. The amount of projects that actually got developed was a tiny fraction of the acceptances that came through. Do I expect that to increase beyond what I saw originally? Absolutely. Do I still think that we're going to get all of the queue actually building out? I still think it's going to be unlikely. We do a lot of red flag DD, we see projects, even some projects that get consented from planning still can have some fairly substantial material issues in terms of the grid that gets missed and everything else. So having a queue that's accepted that is far bigger than what you actually need is standard. 
been there, I think, for the last 10 years. There has been a cumulative queue that is far, far, far in excess of what the country currently needs in terms of its um, energy usage. But in reality, not all projects get accepted or not all projects that are accepted get built out. And I think that just needs to be relooked at again in terms of a better estimation as to which projects will actually come to market. And I guess that's what National Grid were trying to do when they were changing their construction planning assumptions, you know, having the sort of attrition rates and, you know, trying to build that in. I suspect some of that's going to come in a bit more maybe on the DNO side. We've got milestones coming in that's going to help a transmission to, to try and uh, help clear out schemes from from that queue and so on. So um, we've gone through lots and lots today already. One last chance, anything else from any of you guys to uh, flag up? I think my brain's fried already. The listeners' brains are probably fried already. <laughs> um, okay, so I think that's probably it. We'll call it a day. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you tune in again for our next episode. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, all. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for taking your precious time to listen to this episode. Now, not everyone is ready to have a connectologist in their life. For others, it's just too expensive. And as our team is so small, we do have to be very selective in what work we take on. And that's why we put so much effort into these shows. We want our society to have the equitable energy system it needs in order to decarbonise and to thrive. So we want to help to topple as many connections barriers as we possibly can, in spite of our size. So please do feel free to ping a link to this episode to anyone you know who might be interested, because it would mean so much to everyone here.